We're back! We're back! It's a distraction! I'm Drew! That's Rob! How you doing, Rob? I'm good, dude. How are things? I, I've had actually, I've actually had a, an enervating beginning of the week because uh, my parents got COVID and my sister and her family finally got COVID. So COVID mm. finished its head count and got pretty much everyone in my family. They're all like, none of them were hospitalized or anything like that. Uh, but they, you know, they all, you know, they all had the usual, ah, got me. Like, I remember when I got it, like, I felt like I had lost a video game, like at the final boss. I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, I was almost there. But then I. Yeah, I'm glad that they're not really going through it health-wise. My parents had it again fairly recently, and uh, it's just tough, like, knowing that, uh, you know, old people you care about aren't well uh, and that you can't really do anything about it. I've had two years of trying to figure out how to feel about this shit. And my parents, this was the second time they'd had it, and it's still, uh, you know, a bummer. It sucks. Uh, but, you know, maybe maybe of another two years, we'll figure out a, a good response well, um, like not to the not to the spread of the disease, we're not going to respond to that. But to no, how to feel about it, definitely not. Like, yeah, I, definitely. My parents are at the age where, like, if they get the flu, I'm like a little on edge. Like, you know, uh, yeah. like, you know, if they, I'm just like, like anything is like, oh, then you know, that, I got, I got. Should I come up? Do I need to come up? You know, stuff like that. Hey, our guest this week. It's Bloomberg opinion columnist Matt Levine, the only business columnist on earth who's worth a shit. Hi, Matt. Hi, thanks for having me. It, oh, look at that, look at that deep, rich, luscious voice coming in out my head. Of that's what I sound like. I know it's not true, <laughs> but I think it would be nice if it were. <laughs> we're, we're big fans, man. Thank you for coming on the uh, podcast. Yeah, you, so Matt, uh, I'm going to preface this with a little bit of of gross praise, but like back at uh, Deadspin when I worked there, and Tommy Craig's was the boss. I said to him, like I I, I always had shitty ideas, and I was like. I was like, we need like a business vertical because like that would be cool if we had like a business vertical and we talked about business like in the dead spin way. And he ignored me because that's what people do. And, <laughs> but like so then I but then I read Matt, I read your work for the first time, and I was like, that's it. That's exactly what I want a business writer to sound like if if I worked alongside that business writer because it's like oh, it's it is the perfect amount of uh, information. But also, uh, it's the right tone. It's the right sense of it's the right amount of skepticism that business deserves, in my opinion. And I'm that more is, of a Jim Cramer guy personally. I like a Jim Cramer energy. But yeah. I think what you're doing, what you do, is nice too. Yeah, yeah I don't think I bring quite a Jim Cramer energy. Yeah, I mean, there's things that you could be prescribed that would get you up to that level, <laughs> but it's bad for you, and I think it would be bad for the work. Jim Jim Cramer was great because he like. Like he has to stalk the set with his sleeves rolled up as if he is on a trading floor. I always liked that sort of like, like if he's not sweating. That's what, that's what I look like when I'm writing. But. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not like, just a standing desk, but a prowling desk. <laughs> you got to have it. Just ripping heaters and like throwing cigarette butts at the window while you're doing it. That's great. I feel like Kramer must have like some sort of thing that like requires his set to be kept at like some you know, 87 degrees, like with ta- whatever temperature Taylor Lorenz's home is, that's like he needs to be someplace that's uh, like warm to get the juices flowing, get them sweating, uh, get the pupils shrunk up. Well, let's let's get on to, uh, let's go on to, to Matt. Because uh, Matt, you have been writing a lot about uh, Elon Musk and his acquisition of Twitter. Uh, just on Monday, Elon sent a letter to Twitter saying they had failed to give them enough information about their spam and bot accounts and that that would constitute a breach of their merger agreement. Now, we all know that Elon is full of shit in every regard here, 
But since you are the business knower, Matt, why is he doing any of this to begin with? Uh, going back how far? Uh, why is he buying Twitter? I don't know why he's buying Twitter. I don't know why he's trying to get out of buying Twitter. Um, he is buying Twitter, he says, because he wants to uh, you know, have more free speech on Twitter. I think you know, when you're that rich, you... You know, like he likes Twitter. It's his favorite toy. He wants it to be exactly the way he wants it. And I think he finds aspects of Twitter annoying, as we all do. And because he's the richest person in the world, he gets to buy Twitter so he can change them. Uh, That was, I think, basically the reasoning for why he wanted to buy Twitter. That and, you know, somehow getting involved in Republican politics. Uh, And then why is he trying to get out of buying Twitter? My best guess is that he... Uh, agreed to buy Twitter just sort of before uh, tech stocks and social media stocks and Tesla stock in particular crashed pretty hard. And so the price he agreed to pay feels pretty rich. So he's trying to, I think, pay a lower price. And he has seized on the excuse of like Twitter has too many bots as a way to try to negotiate his way to paying a lower price. Did he also do that because like just just this week also the attorney general of Texas said he is investigating Twitter over these bots. So is it a matter of Elon sort of sort of using that excuse to dragoon sort of conservative support and put pressure on Twitter to, to come down in price? Yeah, my guess is that actually worked the opposite way. I don't know, but my guess is that the Attorney General of Texas saw Elon Musk going after Twitter for this and said, this is a good way to like win over Elon Musk's, Musk fans and like raise my political profile. My guess is that Elon doesn't care that much about what the Texas At- Attorney General is doing and that it won't have much effect and that the Texas AG is more interested in allying himself with Elon than, than vice versa. But I don't know. I mean, I certainly think that like he would like to put pressure on Twitter to try to bring the price down or do whatever he wants. Like he may, he may actually want to get out of the deal. He may have just grown bored with it, but I think he just wants the price to go down. And I think that having, you know, everything he tweets about this is designed to make life hard for Twitter. And that's in, you know, part of that is his lawyers sending letters about how he can get out of the deal. But a lot of it is just like his fans on Twitter sending nasty tweets at Twitter executives. And then some of it sure is Republican politicians going after Twitter. It is weird that you've done a, a good job, I think, covering this in the, the post, because there's something, even by the standards of news involving Elon Musk, and even by the standards that prevail with Twitter, this thing is fucking exhausting. <laughs> like, it is re- really, uh, like, sort of double bank, like, inauthentic. Well, not inauthentic, but I mean, just like, it's really hard to get a sense of uh, anybody's sort of earnest intentions with this beyond... Uh, also because of the fact that I think that there's not a great deal of, of forethought that seems to have gone into this on, on Elon's part. On Beyond sort of analyzing it, and we can go back to that, I just wanted to get this uh, question posed to you before I forgot about it. My, that happens to me a lot. How do you deal with writing about something that is this, not just opaque, but, but kind of dumb? Like, where... Like, in terms of, because I've been impressed by the amount of, like, sort of equanimity and clarity that's in your posts about it. And yet, at the same time, like, you are doing most of the work in that area, it seems like. Like, that what Elon himself is doing is, like, you have to parse this, but it doesn't really seem like, it seems like you're doing most of the thinking for him. Because he's just <laughs> the guy posting the poop emoji and getting upset about his mentions. 
Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I was briefly a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. And, like, part of what makes this feel so dumb to me is that, like, there's a way that M&A is done and it's not like this. It's very different from this. And so a lot of what I'm doing is just trying to kind of, like, fit the nonsense that he's doing into, like, the standard categories of how M&A works and trying to figure out, like, what, what could he possibly be doing here? Or, like, what what can Twitter do in response to this? Uh, so in some ways it's fun, like like fitting the dumb stuff into the real stuff. But it's also very frustrating because like, you know, like you, like the people who do this for a living, like believe in the M&A stuff. And like, they believe that like, there are sort of like ways that you behave and there are kind of rules that you follow. And Elon Musk just doesn't believe in those rules and doesn't really have to follow them because he's so rich and he has such a big online fan base. And so uh, it's hard. You can be like, well, this is how it's supposed to go. But like, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Know? Like it fits into this sort of broader like way of writing about politics, business, whatever that like, you know, it sort of has, uh, I think, for me, like supplanted everything else the last five years, which is like beyond describing what you're describing. You're trying to figure out if anything matters anymore. Yeah. That's and that's right. a, a kind of a, a heavy weight to lift. Right. There's like a, there, right. Like there are sort of rules and ways that people behave. And like in the last five years, people have gotten a lot of mileage out of saying, we just don't have to do that anymore and we can just do whatever we want. And, right. Uh, and certainly Elon Musk is doing that now. Can I ask you, what do you think <laughs> Musk can do? Like, can he get that price down? Can he get out of the deal? And what will he end up being able to do? I assume he can get away with anything he wants, but I'm curious what you think the end game here will be. Man, I have no idea. Again, like I come from a background of being an M&A lawyer and I look at like the merger agreement and I look at like how things normally go and I think it's pretty locked up and he will have a tough time getting out of the deal. I think, he, you know, like he signed a contract that says he has to buy the company. The stuff about the bots is all bullshit and he's not going to get out because of that. And Twitter's board sensibly are like, we got a really good price and there's no good reason for him to get out of the deal. So we're not really that interested in renegotiating. That's sort of what I think from my background. But if you look at the stock price of Twitter, like the market doesn't think that like the market thinks he's going to either get out of this or recut it at a much lower price. Um, and like a lot of smart people are making that call. Right. And I think that, you know, you balance like how you think M and a law works, how you think deals usually work, what you think advisors are telling Twitter and what you think advisors are telling Elon Musk versus like, He's Elon Musk. He can do whatever he wants. Right. He's like pretty successful and smart at doing whatever he wants. And uh, he has a lot of money. And he's he's clearly willing to fight things more than other people would fight things. And that makes it kind of hard for, for Twitter to sort of plan on him doing the expected thing. It almost so, sounds like you're telling me that we live in a society... Is that what you're trying? Yeah, I mean, to tell? He, and he sort of doesn't, right? And that's right. that's right. Like, right? Like everyone, everyone who's, who's advising Twitter, everything I'm writing is sort of based on like the idea that we do live in a society, and uh, and like that's just not. It's not obvious that's true anymore. What yeah. is the what is the current stock value of Twitter versus what uh, Elon was going to pay for it? Uh, let's see. He agreed to pay fifty four dollars and twenty cents because he likes putting four twenty and everything. Um, and that's the stock epic. price. That's pretty epic. You got to admit, <laughs> that it's a very sick. epic thing to do. <laughs> that is so uh, sick, bro. Uh, <laughs> so the stock price now is like forty dollars and change, thirty cents. I see. So uh, you know, like if you bought the stock for forty dollars and thirty cents, and he closes this deal in in, a, in in three months, then you make like fourteen dollars a share, and you do really well. Um, but clearly, 
people are skeptical of that. Is there a, a deadline? Like, how long does this fight get protracted to? Uh, you know, they have to have a shareholder vote. Um, so they need to like they need to like do some paperwork, which I think requires like some minimal involvement from him. Not a ton, but he needs to kind of sign off on the paperwork and like help the bankers like do the debt. And so they've got a few months where they have to like get the paperwork in order for a shareholder vote, and then the shareholders have to vote. And then after that, they send him a letter saying, hey, it's time to close the deal. And uh, and then he either does or doesn't. So I think we're looking at like two months What if he this. doesn't sign that shit, though? Well, if he's just like, mm-hmm, I'm Elon Musk. Mm-hmm, I don't have to sign anything. Mm-hmm. Then like then like it goes to like very annoying court, you know? Like then it doesn't go to court of like, you got to close the deal. It goes to court of like, you got to sign this piece of paper, right? And then like that's super annoying. Yeah. There's something really in the last, well, probably not the last post because you probably have written two or three since this, but there's an image at uh, the tail end of your analysis of this in one of your more recent uh, blogs that is just basically like the idea of all of these people, the lawyers on both sides, working away to close this deal as if it were normal. And while Musk posts, and then the last bit that you have in there is him being halfway through a tweet someday, somewhere in the future, and realizing that he actually owns the site now. Right, because like... Like honestly, like, and, and I'm changing my mind on this, but like for a while, because there was like, like he started this bot stuff like three weeks ago, and then he kind of stopped, and I was just like, he's like trolling, like he's having fun online, but like the deal is still going ahead as normal, and the trolling is totally separate from like the people who are actually doing the work of getting, you know, of, of like acquiring Twitter for him. Now I'm not so sure about that, but I'm not sure it's not true, right? Like I think he might actually just be like the stuff that he's doing online to troll might be totally separate from like the serious professionals getting the deal closed. And he might just, uh, you know, keep tweeting about how he's not going to buy Twitter until like the day he buys Twitter. Yeah. I think he's, this is the thing that's kind of like, again, you know, probably maddening to write about with him, but also kind of, you know, worth bearing in mind is that he more so, I think even than the average Twitter user is just like one of those um, monkeys in an experiment that pushes a button and then a treat comes out. Like he, his approach to Twitter is entirely that it seems. And, you know, the treats that come out are, you know, big numbers and like an attention and adoration from some real people. And then some, I guess, presumably bots. And like that, I guess like the idea that he would somehow be less subject to those um, sort of incentives than people who are less rich or less invested personally in the website. Uh, I don't know that it's heartening exactly that he is exactly as or more subject to that shit than anybody else, but it is certainly striking to see like from the way he acts. Yeah. It's funny also because like he's going to buy Twitter or, or, or he isn't, but like he's like, like I, I joke about this and I think a lot of people joke about this. Like like it's so clear that no one who works at Twitter uses Twitter, you know? Yeah. Like the people who make the product kind of don't like it or understand it. And then Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter and make himself the CEO of Twitter and he loves Twitter. He like just loves using Twitter and is like good at it in his way. So I think it is like <laughs> it's hardening one in the sense that like we're all fucking around on Twitter and so is the richest man on earth, but also like in the sense that uh he's gonna buy Twitter and like give like run it from the perspective of its most addicted user which is probably bad but but interesting yeah i mean it certainly is more interesting than as i think as you've pointed out too that like the board of people who are just like the people that are the board of every big company on the west coast that are just sort of like random rich guys that are kind of like have you tried doing more ads for so we can make more money with it or whatever and like it's like 
whatever. No one is going to get exactly what they want out of this because the website is designed to make you insane. But there, you're right that there is something to the fact that like it being owned by someone who has been driven insane by the website in the way the website is designed to drive people insane. Like it's hard to wonder. It's hard to imagine a way in which it could be that different. Like it seems like it is working for him the way that he wants it to work. Oh yeah, I mean like 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 the things that he's proposing are in the scheme of things well i don't know i mean I, it's it's unclear exactly what he's proposing but like he kind of like my assumption is he kind of wants to keep twitter the same because he really just loves using twitter yeah, and it wants to well own it him. to preserve it i kind of like in like i have a, a bizarre daydream where like he's the one who actually like is smart enough to in, like install an edit button on tweets but well, i don't know no edit button don't do i don't want that shit you I don't want that either, button? but he said he's going to do that. I know. Well, but, I mean, he says he says a lot of things. You but, made a good point yes. though earlier, Roth, that made me think about how, like, if you are at a certain level of followers and renown, Twitter is less a platform for like interacting with people than it is like a validation machine, where like the world is separated into your fans and your haters, and you're only gonna care about the fan result, and like most of the haters will get filtered out anyway because Twitter's filters are are like that. And and with Elon, you were noting, Matt, that he was like, you know, he, you thought he was sort of joking and trolling at first. And he's very much that kind of guy like Martin Screlly where he thinks he's much funnier than he actually is. And that ends up like, and then people end up getting pissed off at him when, he, when he's like, when he's joking, like in quotation marks. But then that becomes his whole shtick, like pissing people off by joking, not joking all the fucking time. And that's a bit of a problem when you are, the richest man in the world. <laughs> and, but like, is he even? Is that like, how much of Musk's wealth can I, can I trust if he's trying to get out of this deal because he doesn't like the price? Does he just not like the price on principle? Or is there actual like financial issues with Musk in this acquisition? Uh, you know, most of his wealth is, is, most of his like available wealth is in Tesla. Most of his wealth is in Tesla stock, and a lot of his other wealth is in like the private companies he owns. That he'd, it'd be hard to sell those and get cast to buy Twitter. So it's so it liquid. Actually, yeah, I mean it's liquid-ish in the sense that Tesla stock is like pretty liquid, and he has been able to borrow money against his Tesla stock, and he's been able to sell billions of dollars of Tesla stock. But it's not entirely clear that he has the thirty-three billion dollars that he'd need to put up to buy Twitter. I mean, like just in cash, he could get it by selling Tesla stock, but that would be, you know, like be like unpleasant. Right. Um, but like, you know, he certainly has enough money, but I think we're now at the point where if he were to sell Tesla stock to buy Twitter, it would be like a little bit uncomfortable for him. Not like he would, you know, not have enough money to live on, but it would be like a little annoying. I can't remember if it was your theory or not, but it was one that we all sort of got on with where, Elon started this whole thing anyway to distract people from the fact that Tesla stock was going down. Yeah, that's not, I wouldn't say that's my favorite. Like I, I would say like a number of people have said, uh, I mean, there's two, there's two strands of this, right? One is that he wants to own Twitter because him being on Twitter is very valuable for him because he can make Tesla stock go up by tweeting, which I think is like largely true. Um, and then the other point is that if he wanted to sell some Tesla stock to get some cash, 
uh, if he just did that, it would drive down the price of Tesla stock and people would say, well, why is Elon not interested in Tesla anymore? What, what does he know that we don't know? Um, whereas if you said, I'm going to sell a bunch of Tesla stock so I can buy Twitter, everyone will say, aha, Elon has done a brilliant thing and therefore this price of Tesla won't go down. Yeah. Or at least that's a theory. I mean, like, by the way, the price of right? Tesla has gone down. So I don't know that it worked, but. Maybe the uh, the video of the cyber truck very slowly driving across a parking lot outside of a factory in Northern California is going to bump it back up. I mean, it looks that's like it a, did actually. It's up like yeah, it's up. Well, that's a rough looking today. car. I, the thing I that looks <laughs> looks like what Emilio Estevez drives in Free Jack. Yeah, I did. I did tell. Uh, I have noticed this before, but I finally took a ride in a Tesla the other week, and I was like stunned by like how there's nothing in it, which like. Yeah. That sounds like really beautiful and minimalist and stuff like that, but really it's just an empty space with a TV in it. It's a fucking bachelor pad of a car. So that completely explains his fan base, right? But then it's also just like, it's not like, I like having like buttons and like doodads in a car. I don't like a fucking, an empty car. I need shit in it. (laughs) I've never been in one. You see some taxis that are Teslas now, but I, I keep instead getting the ones where it's like a mini, you know, what a minivan where the seats are weirdly very close to the buffered where the driver is and stuff. Like I've never gotten in a cool cab <laughs> or a futuristic one. <laughs> let's take a let's take a break and come right back with uh, Matt Levine. We'll be right back. We are back with Matt Levine of Bloomberg. Uh, just today. Matt, the Denver Broncos were sold for a cool $4.65 billion, which is actually less than I expected them to go for. They were bought by a Walton uh, to be named later. Uh, Are the Broncos, in your opinion, worth the money? And how much of an NFL's franchise's value do you think is based on performance? And how much is based on potential performance? And I don't mean on the field. I mean financial performance. You know, I don't know. Like, my general assumption is that owning a sports team is like a prestige consumption good and like it's like owning a yacht and you're not doing it to make money on it. But it is also the case that sports owners like seem to make money on it, right? Like because yeah. you have like you have the ability to like extract value out of out of like the local, you know, out of the cities and states. You can be like build me a stadium or I'll take your beloved team away. So I don't really know how people analyze these things, but I have to assume the highest bidder for a sports team is like they think they're overpaying and the seller thinks they're overpaying and everyone thinks it can't possibly generate that much cash flow. And then often like it just does anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah I think be- that's the, the, all the, the profit seems like it's tied up in the sort of the ancillary stuff. And that's like, you know, the way that the rickets make money off the Cubs, which is basically by owning the neighborhood around it, by building hotels in that neighborhood, by like, you know, finding new ways to wring dollars out of stuff. It seems to me like we're going to get, to a point where a team couldn't possibly be worth the amount that is paid to obtain it. And yet I don't know that the Broncos are necessarily it. No, I I feel like, what do you think, Drew? I no, I agree because, because the TV revenue alone is not only enormous, it is also guaranteed. And I, I think, I think it might be for the next decade and it just keeps going up and up and up. And so in that way, I have, I have sort of always thought that, an NFL franchise is like one of the safest investments in, in a grossly rich person can make. Cause it's just a fucking, it's a money machine. It just, it just keeps cranking out the dough. Even if you suck, even if you're Mike Brown and you do fucking nothing, not only do you still get the money, but you can sometimes stumble bass backwards into a fucking Super Bowl if you feel like it. So, yeah. right. which is just weird from a, like a business perspective, because like you'd think that 
like, because that means it's underpriced, right? Like, like, like the fact that people make money on owning, you know, NFL teams means that like they're underpaying for them. And it's weird because it is such a desirable prestige thing for like billionaires to buy. You'd think there'd be so much competition to own sports teams that like it would be hard to make money by buying them and then owning them. But in fact, people do seem to make money. Well, you know, it's interesting because we interviewed Reeves Weidman, who did a book about WeWork. And one of the people involved in WeWork, not Adam Newman, the other guy, he had a company that did not sell for a lot because it committed the cardinal sin of like making too much profit too early. And so essentially they were like, oh, well, we know what this business is. We, it wasn't, it, what, there wasn't the potential there for it to become, in the, in the investors' minds, like a $10 billion company because it was already like a $500 million company. So they were like, oh, well, we've seen what it can do. So we're not really going to, it's already a successful company. We don't want this. We want a failed company that has a oh, yeah. shitload of debt. Right. Like, it, like, like, the, like WeWork was like the pinnacle of like the thing to do to be a valuable company was to grow really fast and like lose money on everything. Yep. Um, like if you, if your losses kept growing, then that made you really valuable. And if you just slowly grew your profits, that was bad. And That's changed a little bit. <laughs> it also seemed like there was like that element of you had to lose in a way that was entertaining to the people that would be investing in you too, that like you needed to, to put on a show and like hit them with the razzle dazzle. Like Adam, Adam Newman, I'm immune to that particular type of charm, but like being a tall guy with long hair seems like it got him like, I don't know, an extra couple hundred million dollars on the back end of his company's failed IPO and stuff. There's that, the mystification of it, it's something you've, again, that you've written, I think very well about you uh, and our own Dan McQuaid have covered like the, the, the deli in South Jersey that's like was briefly like a whatever a billion dollar concern somehow despite the fact that it was open like three days a week and made twenty five thousand dollars a year that there's all of this this element of fakeness to the way that the market works now not in terms of like everything being securities fraud and all of the other stuff but just in terms of an element of abstraction that a normal civilian could not possibly hope to pierce. Or me, anyway. I'm not smart enough to see. Yeah, that. I don't know. I think WeWork actually had a simple story that kind of didn't work out. But like the idea was like we're gonna, you know, own all of the office space and rent it to people, and we'll be like the biggest middleman in office space, and everyone will need an office from us, and we'll eventually start making money on that. Like I don't think that idea was crazy. But I think that, that wasn't like entirely aspects it, though, of it, was, right? Because that? that was that is a reasonable idea. I can understand. But there's still would... a company, right? And like they're still kind of yeah. trying for that. But they're like they've like right sized to actually being a real estate business, which it's or to a certain extent. Whereas like Newman's thing, it seemed like the way that they gassed up the the valuation from where I was sitting, you'd know more about this than me, was him being like, No, we're going to fucking Mars and like and yeah. we're gonna become like a preschool concern too, and we're gonna like bring consciousness to a higher level. That's definitely true, but I think people also were investing in it because they thought the real estate idea was good, and they thought he was like a charismatic visionary guy who could do the real estate thing well. Um, the deli is very different. The deli is just like there's some sort of weird shenanigans going on there. It's very yeah. it's very weird to me because every company now they can't just say we'd like to be a prosperous business that makes a lot of money. Like that's it's always like we're gonna change the world. That's a bit of a cliche, but it's like we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and we're going to make lives better and stuff like that. It's never just the promise of, we're going to be successful. Like I, it, The success never can be couched just in fiduciary terms, when really that's all that matters. Well, I think that that's, that's sort of a bias about what's get, what gets like 
attention because I think like if you look at you know what a lot of venture capitalists are investing in it's a lot of like business business software companies where no one really thinks they're changing the world but they're like you know they're like they can point to how they're going to make money it's a mix and I think that the, it's in the interests of people funding tech companies to say we're funding changing the world we're funding going to Mars and like making human life better but like you know people are still in this business to make money and like most of the things that they're doing are mostly just trying to make money and then like the things like we work changing human consciousness get a lot of outsized attention this is why i think defector needs to be more ambitious in terms of what we're promising to people as a value right. proposition because right now it's posts and sometimes podcasts and we also have a merch store and i think that we need to invent a religion or something along those lines. I don't know. We're, we have an all hands later this afternoon. I think we we'll could probably do that. hash it out there. <laughs> uh, before we move on to the fun bag and remembering some guys, I wanted to ask you about the business press. Because, Matt, like I said at the beginning, I find you to be an outlier among the business press in terms of both your, your wit and your candor. Um, you know, I'm used to the business press being populated by just absolute shitbags like Maria Bartiromo and Jim Cramer and Darren Ravel. Do you, um, what is your opinion of the rest of the business press without getting yourself fired? Uh, do, do you feel as if the business press is sufficiently covering its subject or is it in its thrall? Oh, I don't know. The business press is a lot of my friends now. I'm, I kind of like the business press. It, it's also, it's my friends, but it's also like, you know, I read a column where I sort of like riff on business news and I like reading business news so that I can write about it. So no, I have only good things to say about the business press. I don't know. I mean, like, I think, um, you know, you have the problems of any press. Like I think a lot of like, I think the Elon stuff has been frustrating for me because there's a lot of like bias to covering things straight where like if Elon says, I'm worried that there are 20, that like 20% of Twitter users are bots. Like what ends up in news stories is Elon Musk is worried that 20% of Twitter users might be bots. And like, that's not true. Like he's yeah, just right. saying that for reasons. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think that's a, that's not a sort of problem that's unique to the business press. I think that's a sort of general problem of like reporting where like you have some uh, desire to, to sort of be objective. And that sometimes gets translated into just taking things that people say at face value, even when, you probably shouldn't. And so it's just like, it's been fun for me to just be very blunt about things because like I can, cause I'm a columnist. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, it, the similar, it's a similar problem in the political press where they'll just right. parrot what has been said by Republicans or even Democrats. And it's just like, you know, that it was said in bad faith, but with the intent of it being conveyed with a straight face to the rest of the people so that they take it more seriously than they ought to. It's fucking deranging what you're describing is really like it's been harder. to. I sort of figured that I would figure a way to get used to it or like how to sort of read it. But the idea of like not just sort of fighting the last war in terms of like trying to bring objectivity to uh, a moment or a discourse that's so shot through with bad faith, but that there is like something about seeing things that are obviously not even, I mean, faints at best, but, like, also sometimes just straight-up, like, dishonest gambits. Having those be covered in a way that treats them more seriously than anyone involved in formulating them uh, did it is... It makes you feel crazy because you yeah. are reading what seems like a straight news story, but you can see what parts of it are fake. Yeah, and I will say that, like, in business, 
there isn't that much of that, right? Like part of why the Elon thing is so strange right. is because it's so egregious. Like in politics, yeah, people are lying all the time. In business, like people, there, there are constraints on people's ability to lie all the time. And I think, you know, obviously people, people like don't like a lot of things about business. But, but in general, my view is that people are kind of more honest and straightforward than like than you expect. And so there just isn't like a ton of like credulously reporting lies in the business press. But like, you know. I think it's because people take it more seriously when there's money involved than when there's like policy involved that like everyone oh, yeah. has also, to agree like, with those rules. I write about this, but like if you are a business person and you are lying to the public, you can get in trouble for fraud. Yeah. Whereas like if you're a politician and you're lying to the public, like that's just the job. Yep. So I do think <laughs> that like um, there are like real constraints in, in the business world that there aren't in the in the in the political world. Uh, do you remember a guy with us, Matt Levine? We, every week we remember an old athlete, and we go, "Oh, I remember that guy." Do you want to try to remember I a won't guy? Remember the guy, but, but try me. Yeah, we can. We can give it a shot. Your guy of the week this week is former Jets running back Bilal Powell. Do you remember that guy, Matt Levine? Uh, I remember the name, but I couldn't tell you much about him. That's all right. If you, if you remember the name, that's not that bad. Yeah, it still counts. Roth, do you remember Bilal Powell? Very fondly. Yeah, I remember Bilal Powell. Uh, he <laughs> played until kind of weirdly recently, right? Like, he had a couple of really bad injuries that then he, like, bothered coming back from just to play with Sam Darnold one more time, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> fucking grim when you think about it. The... Uh, I just I he came to mind recently for me because Ryan Fitzpatrick retired just a few days ago. I've and been trying to write about that. We all time guy Ryan Fitzpatrick, maybe maybe the preeminent guy who has ever existed. And uh, when he retired, someone in his camp did a word cloud, a really shitty word. All word clouds <laughs> suck, but this is a. It was later. It was Fitzpatrick and his kid were the yeah. Oh yeah, it. it was a demonstrably shitty word cloud that, of course, Adam Schefter found to be the most fascinating thing in the world of every teammate that Fitzpatrick had in his years in the NFL. And in the center of the fucking word cloud was Bilal Powell. And I was like, that is so appropriate for a Ryan yeah. Fitzpatrick word cloud for Bilal Powell to be there. So right next to a fucking Jericho Cotchery or some shit like right, that. Right. It's so good. It's just sort of like the, like if there was um like, like one of those lint traps in a dryer and the only thing that you were putting through the dryer was the AFC East. That was basically what the word cloud was. It was just like, you're sort of <laughs> stripping it away and be like, Oh, Patrick pass. Uh. Time for the fun bag. Oh, God, Patrick. Oh, and I remembered another guy, uh, Roth, uh, supplementally. Ramab, uh, remember Rob Nen? Yeah, with two okay. Bs. Yeah. Closer. With... Love I Rob remember... Nen. I, I love a two B, Rob. Uh, this is from the fun bag. Matt Levine. Peter writes in, what is the movie with the worst Rotten Tomatoes ranking that you enjoyed? I always liked Red it, Let It Ride starring Richard Dreyfuss as a generic as a degenerate gambler. Plus, it's got Terry Gar in lingerie. But apparently, it's only a 27 percenter. <laughs> Terry Gar. Matt Levine, is there a movie that is universally reviled that you have gone against the grain and adored privately? Oh, I don't think there is. I don't. I watch so few movies. I have three young kids. Wow, Mr. Conformist. Oh, you have three young kids. Oh, yeah. I haven't you're... seen a movie in like... I don't. I see so few movies. Like I would never. I don't think I've seen any bad movies. You're in the spot Moana. where like the only movie you see is like a Pixar movie, right? right it's like Moana, and you've yeah. seen it 100 times. Moana's good. Like yeah, Moana's no, good, but I think it. like everyone likes Moana. It's a great um, movie. Yeah, you're in the yeah, Encanto yeah. zone right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about you, Roth? Is there one that you love that is not? So much loved by everybody. Uh, else. Yes, uh, a lot. But <laughs> I'm trying to um, think of which would be because there's. I have a whole 
series of irritating ways that I can answer this. There's these sort of like mid-budget 90s actioners that I enjoyed that don't get made anymore where it's like Kurt Russell climbing around on a moving semi-truck. Oh, executive uh, decision and and, uh, yeah. and breakdown. Breakdown, was breakdown is, would be one of them. I like that movie. It's very uh, twisty and neat and there's only like five speaking parts in it. But the real answer to this is that one of my favorite movies, like legitimately one of my favorite movies is Exorcist 3 Legion, which is... Uh, sort of related to the exorcist it's by the it's written and directed by the guy that wrote the book and the screenplay for the first one it is um half kind of existential catholic sunshine boys comedy where it's george c scott and ed flanders talking about the afterlife and then the other half of it is like three or four really super effective jump scares and horror shit it's completely incoherent uh it was recut by the studio they made uh, William Peter Blatty, who directed it, add a, a exorcism in it because he basically brought them a movie that was in the exorcist family of brands that didn't have any exorcism uh, <laughs> happening in it. And the studio was kind of like, we got to, where's my priest? <laughs> and so <laughs> they, had to, they brought in Nicole Williamson, who's like a British Shakespearean actor, to um, talk about, you know, the uh, devil for a little bit. And then that... Didn't really work in the flow of the film. It's very confusing. Uh, but I have always adored it because of how uh, sort of close to the surface the things that the director cares about are and um, how haphazardly connected they are. Uh, so I, I guess I recommend it. I don't know. Like, you'll know right away if you got the patience for it. Do you have, Drew, what is yours? I'm curious about this. My answer is uh, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane starring Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, wow. I, I saw it in not, theaters when I was I in could not camp. wait to see it. When it came out, like I was counting down the days to go see it, and then I went and saw it in the theater, and I was like, I don't know, 13 or 14, and I fucking loved it. Like, there's a scene where, like, he goes onto a ship, and the name of the ship is The Mighty Penis, and I was like, yeah, that's hilarious, The Mighty Penis. And then, like, <laughs> I, I bought it on VHS, and I rewatched it. I have not watched it again in like 20 years, but I'm gonna preserve my affection for Ford Fairlane, and I'm going to keep that entirely to myself and tell exactly nobody else about it. I wonder if it's like, if in some ways Ford Fairlane has been like, obviously no one is reappraising it because nobody is watching it. <laughs> like, it's just not happening. But like, if that was an attempt to take Andrew Dice Clay at the peak of his powers, whatever they were as a stand-up, and reimagine him as like a movie star. Like, he's actually had a way better career as an actor than he did as a comic. Like, he had that that big, you know, early pop. But, like, he wasn't really a very funny stand-up comic. Whereas he he's was, become, like, a pretty solid character actor. Whenever you see him, like, I'm always happy to see him in whatever he's in. He was in Blue Jasmine. He was very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I remember, I remember comedians all getting, all, all getting a little bit of a, of a movie bump back in the 80s when, like, comedians yeah, were like, that's, like, that would be the real dark answer here is, like, just, I celebrate Dane Cook's whole catalog. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in there. <laughs> like, like, Sam Kinison almost did a movie called A Took, which was about an Inuit uh, person. So Sam, Sam Kinison is an Inuit uh, person. Probably not, wouldn't have aged very well. That is Dodged my a bullet guess. on that one. Uh, this is from John Matt Levine. He says, can you list your opinions on food that are white in color besides mayonnaise? He lists coconut milk, sour cream, yogurt, milk, cream, white chocolate, cheese, and ice cream. Matt Levine, do you have a favorite food that is white in color? Do you have any foods that are white in color that offend you and make you angry? Uh, 
I guess of those, I'd pick sour cream. I'm a sour cream guy. I like sour cream. I have a friend who will not eat any cultured foods. So like sour cream and yogurt, forget it. He won't do it. Wait, really? Why? Yeah. I don't Why? know. Maybe he doesn't like the idea of his food being alive. I do not know the answer to that. My wife is all about probiotics. She'll be like, she'll like, she'll buy a mold pill. Like it's got so many probiotics. She's like, she's all about gut health. She oh can't. yeah, you got to get your gut flora. You oh get yeah, the flora. Up. <laughs> like probiotics are like, you want to know what probiotics are, Roth? They're a racket. They're a racket. It's a damn racket. This is as we get older and keep doing this podcast. I think there's going to become a maybe a recurring segment where we're like, it's a racket, and it'll be uh, just us complaining about how you know whatever they make the sandwiches too small these days or whatever. Uh, the idea of not, I think of all the white foods that I have encountered that mozzarella cheese has made me the happiest over the course of my life. Ooh, it's a good choice. It's a good I mean, choice. it's just a solid, it's a solid product. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess like the idea of, when I think of white foods, I do think of things that I don't like, and, but it's good that this person listed, uh, like nine different types of white items that you can eat. Because if the it's thing I'm thinking about is just like vanilla ice cream and white rice, I'm like, yeah, fuck it. Like, give me, give me something in a different color. Ooh, but, I do like white rice though. I do. I, I, I have a very odd relationship with white chocolate because I like it in certain things, like peppermint bark from Williams Sonoma, ding, and like other, and like the Panera. Like, there's a Panera cookie that's all chocolate, but with like, <laughs> it's got macadamia nuts and white chocolate chips, and that's delicious. But if you gave me a bar of just regular white chocolate, I would spit it out and be just utterly disgusted. It doesn't make Can't any sense. Can't tell you how happy I am by the examples you chose there. I absolutely get where you're, where you're coming from with that. Very, uh, very small doses for white chocolate. It needs to be paired with something. That's just the way it goes. Uh, okay, this is from Scott. And I'm going to direct this to, to Roth because it's, it's sports talk radio adjacent. Over the past 15 years or so, I've lived in three major East Coast sports talk radio markets, Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. In each region, there have been some good on-air personalities, even some good shows, but on the whole, the product is terrible. Is this because the medium is inherently flawed? Is it because money rules everything? Is it because sports talk radio is just one more example of our race to the bottom? I don't need Shirley Povich, Roger Angel, or W.C. Hines being profound every day during drive time, but there's got to be a happy medium that makes money and sense before we give into the LCD and team up Stephen A. Rome and Greeny for a nationally syndicated show. Roth, why is most major market radio, sports talk radio, so bad? That's a really good question and one that I've obviously thought about. I think that what it has always come down to for me, so I like have probably heard a million hours of Mike and the Mad Dog over the course of my life without choosing ever to like direct the dial to FAN. Like, it was just on everywhere I went as a kid. And, which is, I think, was the purpose of it. You know, it was like a show that was like five hours of people talking about the Mets bullpen or, you know, whatever, or whatever it was that they thought would sort of keep them upset enough to do it. I think the incentives of it all run the wrong way. That, like, it just basically, to talk about sports for that long, you have to kind of be a bit of a crazy person or at the very least be a narcissist or so a dick idea of, you have to be a dick yeah you would and so that like it's not that you know like mike francesa probably could have had another job but th this is the job that he was best suited for ditto dave, for dave, like dave, dave dave he couldn't have another job but dave, the idea dave. imagine like chris mad dog russo in any other line of work <laughs> Like, just, like, encountering him in, like, a retail setting or something like, like that. Like, he's waiter. like, Yeah, like, he's at the fucking, like, the 
the you know genius bar at like the <laughs> a store we're trying to get your phone fixed and he's just sort of like yelling at you in a voice that sounds like a just a, like a clown honking a horn right in your face that the whole medium is designed to like i guess in some ways it's good because it it filters your mad dog russos and your like howard eskins away from uh, places where they might actually your Howard's Eskin places where they might actually like do harm in society but I feel like fundamentally it's uh, designed to make people crazy like listeners and hosts so it's like fundamentally you'd have to sort of tear the whole thing down to the studs if you wanted it not to be that way Matt have you ever listened to sports talk radio would you could you on a boat in a moat <laughs> While you float, uh, I've enjoyed small doses of it, but I'm not really a sports talk radio guy. I think that's okay. it. Like radio the small, radio. like if you if you just like if you're on a long trip and you you're driving through some town, you don't like you're driving through Cleveland and and you get like ten minutes of someone just really really getting on Donovan Peoples Jones for some reason like that. <laughs> I can see but it's like it's like it's like people are like deeply enthusiastic. It's like a fun genre to like dip into. But like, yeah, I wouldn't want to do it every day. The Don't. call the call in one is fascinating to me for that reason. I think that it's like a good way to sort of. It's not like you don't get the actual temperature of a metropolitan area because like it's only the you know the elite like the top one half of one percent of crazy people that are moved to like call in and yell about how they're whatever misusing Jarvis Landry and they need to have him throw more passes or whatever. Like you have to be a weirdo to do that. But I do agree that there is like something about the uh, encountering the local maniacs that call into stuff like that is always kind of gratifying to me when I've, I've had that experience. It's just like people, like it's, it's nice to see things created by people who really care about them, you know? And like, that's, that's sports talk radio. Can I, I, I want to actually go back and I want to ask you a question, Matt, before we sign off. What made you want to get into business writing to begin with? Was it a happy accident? Was it something you aspired to? Were you like me? Did you read the for, Fortune like 500 like, issue every, every year when you were like very small and like, like marvel at like photos of like Sam Walton and shit? Uh, I did a little bit of that, but like no, I was a I was a lawyer and an investment banker. I got into business journalism because it was more fun than than business, and it pays uh, so well. Uh, <laughs> it, it it pays well for journalism. Um, it's it's not quite investment banking, but um, uh, no, it's a pretty it's it's like a it's a it's a booming sector of journalism. Um, yeah, no, I was I was doing doing finance, and I thought it would be more fun to write about it, and it would probably um, you know. Uh, it would be it would be a, a nicer life and give me a little bit more freedom. So I, I came to it not from like wanting not from like journalism, but from business, and uh, and and it was more fun than doing business. So you 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 don't regret the switch. You've been happy with it. Oh no, yeah, now I'm very happy with it. Uh, that's great. I well, talked to another guy who was like at a hedge fund and then became a business journalist, and I was like, "Would you ever go back?" And he's like, "It's nice not to be yelled at." And like biggest people yell at me in the world, but like it's it's just it's a different you know it's 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 a lot more freedom and a lot more uh, not sort of doing weird things that your weird bosses want. Yeah, getting getting yelled at online is a lot different than getting yelled at by like a Jim Cramer cosplayer like in the corner office <laughs> who's like, "Oh, TPS reports won't write themselves, Levine." Yeah, like people get get real stressed, you know, and like I'm just typing in a box and like making jokes online. It's a lot. It's a nicer life. 
There are a lot of stories about people getting out of finance. There aren't a lot of people who like get out of like baking and go into finance, or like I just needed, I just needed a break from making cupcakes. <laughs> I, need to, I wanted to. It's too yeah, classy. finance really like sort of takes you early, and then like at some point you have to you have to leave. But it's a lot of like you get in when you're 22, and then you eventually burn out and leave. Well, we will never burn out on you, Matt Levine. It's Bloomberg opinion oh, columnist Matt well Levine. And uh, you can read him at Bloomberg. Brandon Nixon, Chantel Holder are our producers. Nora Richie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Wherever it is that you listen, and go subscribe to Defector 2 while you're at it. And Matt Levine, thank you for coming on again. Will you join us again sometime? Sure, thank you. Appreciate thank you it. so much. All right, bye, everybody. Bye.